0: Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Giovanoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Hi there, and welcome back. Today we are talking about an excerpt from Rebecca Solnit's book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost. I wish you guys could see my copy of this book. Maybe I'll include a photo in the show notes. There are post-its sticking out of it at all angles, and when you flip through, you would be hard-pressed to find a page not marked up with underlined sentences and copious scribblings in the margins. This is why I don't do well with library books. I am not only an incorrigible rereader, but I am a marker-upperer of books. My husband Justin finds it hysterical that I have been known to completely freak out at one of my books getting water damaged, and yet I have zero compunctions about taking to it with pencils and pens and highlighters until it's nearly unreadable. In this book, this has been the recipient of all of those markups. Plus, it's um, clearly ended up in my backpacks and tote bags and shoved into my purse while running errands, as the cover readily indicates. So why all of this hard use? Because this book is so rich. Her use of language and story is beautiful. But more than that, it is a deeply resonant book. Choosing a single excerpt felt nearly impossible, and looking for one resulted in one of those glorious afternoons where I looked up from the rabbit warren of these pages only to discover that hours had flown by, the afternoon had grown dark, and I was no closer to singling out what I wanted to share here than I had been when I began. So, like I said about the Brian Doyle collection back in episode one, this is likely not the only episode that will feature an excerpt from this book. So with that, let's dig in from a field guide to getting lost. How often the early stages of change or cure may mimic deterioration. Cut a chrysalis open and you will find a rotting caterpillar. What you will never find is that mythical creature, half caterpillar, half butterfly, a fit emblem of the human soul for those whose cast of mind leads them to seek such emblems. No, the process of transformation consists almost entirely of decay. But the butterfly is so fit an emblem for the human soul that its name in Greek is psyche, the word for soul. We have not much language to appreciate this phase of decay, this withdrawal, this era of ending that must precede beginning, nor of the violence of the metamorphosis which is so often spoken of as though it were as graceful as a flower blooming. I write this and then one day with a free hour in between a conversation and an obligation, go to the old conservatory of flowers near my home, recently restored and reopened. I had not been there in nine years since it was ravaged by a great winter storm. I thought I would look at the gleaming dark leaves large as maps, at the vines and mosses and orchids and breathe that humid air, the steamy glories I remembered. But the west wing of the great greenhouse, with its milky window panes, had become a butterfly garden. And in the middle of that chamber was a butterfly hatchery, a window a few inches in front of a wooden plank, or rather shallow series of shelves, to which were pinned platoons of future butterflies, sorted by species. The chrysalises had taken on the shape of the butterflies inside, and some rocked as though stirred by a faint breeze, though the adjacent chrysalises were still. Four butterflies emerged while I watched, and seven more when I returned another day. They came out with their wings packed down like furled parachutes, like crumpled letters. Even as they emerged, it seemed incredible that their wide wings had once fit in so slender a space. As they emerged, their bodies were visible as they would never quite be again once the wings expanded and came to dominate the creature. And during those moments, they looked like bugs, like insects, instead of What they would be when they were all brilliantly colored wing like some sentient cousin of flowers their bodies were still plump with the fluid they had to pump into those wings in the first minutes of their emergence to make them the straight sheets with which they flew each clung to its chrysalis while its wings unfolded by almost imperceptible stages some did not get quite free and their wings never fully straightened one butterfly sat still with an orange wing curled into the chrysalis One seemed permanently stuck halfway out, its yellow and black wings like buds that would not flower. One flailed frantically, trying to drag itself out by crawling onto adjacent, unopened chrysalises, until they, too, began to thrash a contagious panic. That one finally dropped free, though it may have been too late for its wings to straighten. The process of transformation consists mostly of decay, and then of this crisis, when emergence from what came before must be total, and abrupt. But the state changes in a butterfly's life are not always so dramatic. The strange, resonant word instar describes the stage between two successive molts, for as it grows, a caterpillar, like a snake, like cabeza de vaca walking across the southwest, splits its skin again and again, each stage in instar. It remains a caterpillar as it goes through these molts, but no longer one in the same skin. There are rituals marking such splits, graduations, indoctrinations, ceremonies of change, though most changes proceed without such clear and encouraging recognition. Instar implies something both celestial and ingrown, something heavenly and disastrous. And perhaps change is commonly like that, a buried star oscillating between near and far. Mm, Whoa. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. The imagery of caterpillar transforming into beautiful butterfly isn't new. We're inundated by it from the time we're children, and it's not really hard to understand why. But to be honest, it was imagery that has always fallen a bit flat for me. It always felt so idyllic, so smooth— Like, one day a caterpillar wrapped himself up in a cozy cocoon blanket, fell asleep, and when he woke, stretched his sleepy wings out, only to discover that he turned into this gorgeous new thing and, delighted, flew off to frolic among the flowers. I'd never experienced any change, large or small, that felt even remotely like that. Whether it was moving around as a military kid growing up, or letting go of friendships that had drifted away, or beginning a new career path, or a course of study, or romantic entanglements that came to an end... None of it's felt smooth or idyllic. None of it felt easy or even a little bit delightful. So the first time I read these words, it was like an electric jolt ran through my body. She says, cut a chrysalis open and you will find a rotting caterpillar. The process of transformation consists almost entirely of decay, this era of ending that must precede beginning. Now that sounds a lot more like what change actually has felt like for me. You know, she talks about this phase of decay that is inherent, it like is an inherent part of transformation. And I want to pause and I want to look at the words that she chooses here because they are powerful. Deterioration, decay, rot. I mean, these are words that we ultimately associate with death, right? Because some part of us, some part of our lives or our identities or our perceptions or our attachments must and do die any that we change and transform. This is especially true and obvious when it comes to big changes, right? Even when they're transformations that we've sought and worked for and sacrificed for. I had a client last year who, after several years of fertility treatments and failed in vitro attempts, managed to get pregnant. She and her partner had mortgaged their home and used their retirement savings to create a family that they wanted desperately. And late in her pregnancy, she confided that she was scared, that she was scared of losing herself, of losing who she was before children, losing the marriage that she and her partner shared. And that fear was well-founded, right? Because inevitably, having children will change things. She could not keep all of her before in her after, could she? She couldn't keep all the pieces of her former life, of the way that she had done things, all the parts of the marriage, like once her children were a part of it. It's a different life. It will look different. And she didn't doubt that the change was welcome. I mean, it was invited. She fought for it. It was deeply desired. And also, it is still change. And change means loss, even when it also means gain. You know, we can see this when we transform from children into adults, right? For many of us, that transformation period of adolescence is fraught with the push-pull of gain and loss, of wanting to move forward into the autonomy of adulthood, the terror of how to be an adult, and then the incidents that strip our childhood innocence away and root to that adulthood. Gaining adulthood means losing childhood. And with it, there is often the death of childhood fantasies, ideas, beliefs, maybe some of the feelings of safety or security. I think most of us would agree that we're glad not to be Peter Pan stuck in childhood forever, but the process of gaining adulthood wasn't smooth for many of us. When big changes happen that we don't want, that we don't plan for, that sense of something dying can be even more acute, right? Divorce, losing a job, business going under, the actual death of a loved one, you know, a global pandemic. Even if, much later, we end up coming to see these changes as blessings or we find versions of ourselves or our lives on the other side of them that we love, it doesn't alter the fact that the process of transformation included the death of what came before. Loss is painful, even if we're in a position to intellectually understand that we are transforming. That something new and beautiful is on the other side of what we're losing. With loss, there is grief. And I think this can be often overlooked. That anytime there is an ending of any sort, there is usually some measure of grief of some sort. Even when something awful comes to an end, there can be grief if only for the lost potential or hope that we entered the situation with. And maybe that grief can be short-lived as the fruits of our transformation can quickly become clear. Or maybe it stays with us, a thread that becomes part of our story, integrated into part of our after. A dear friend of mine once commented in a conversation that transformation is a fucking bloody business. Reading the words of this passage, I was reminded of that comment and how true it rang to me when she said it. Many of the big transformations of our lives, whether external, like relationships or jobs, or internal, some personal or spiritual revelation, are bloody as we let something end, let something decay and die so that we can take that pulpy mess and reform it into something new, something exquisite that resembles, as Solnit puts it, a sentient cousin of flowers. Now. When she talks about the butterflies emerging from the chrysalises, she says, they came out with their wings packed down like furled parachutes, like crumpled letters. Even as they emerged, it seemed incredible that their wide wings had ever fit in such a slender space. And isn't that so often what it feels like when we come through a transformation? We surface from that decay a little shell-shocked, a little crumpled, And then we blink and we expand into our new forms. We look back at our former lives, our former selves, our former perceptions, and we wonder how it was that we ever fit into that space. You know, we hear the term growth and we don't always realize what that means, how often it means that we no longer fit into those old relationships or those old patterns, the old ways of being or believing or living, we've outgrown those things that require that we stay small or that try to keep us furled. She talks about how the butterflies emerge and have to cling to their broken open chrysalis, how their bodies are exposed as they pump fluid into their wings to make them expand. We come through our bloody transformations, and in that moment of realizing that we've outgrown what once held us, when we find ourselves in new and unfamiliar territory, we feel naked and exposed, and we cling for a few last moments to the familiar, even though it's done its part and it no longer serves us. And we pump fluid into our brand new wings. We, we let our curiosity move into us, Let it move in next to the fear that has us clinging to those remnants of before. Now this curiosity begins with simple interest. We notice wings where there were none. We feel the breeze upon them and we wonder what it might feel like if we unfurled them just a little. And that curiosity pumps in and it fills us and our wings grow, they straighten. Eventually we grow curious enough to want to test them, and to do that, we have to let go. We have to let go of the chrysalis we cling to. We have to let go of before, if we want to find out all that's possible in the after. If we want to find out what this self born of the pain and the loss and the grief of that bloody transformation is capable of. She says, Some did not get quite free, and their wings never fully straightened. And then she goes on later to say, The process of transformation consists mostly of decay and then of this crisis when emergence from what came before must be total and abrupt. There is so often this temptation to try to keep one foot in our before. Maybe it's not being able to let go of a regret or an old wound, Maybe we're clinging to an idea of what we believe something should look like or some old definition of success or love. Maybe we feel we've come this far on this path and there's no changing now. Or maybe we'd rather deal with the devil we know than risk the unknown, even when some voice within us knows that this isn't working. We get stuck, unable to fully extricate ourselves from our before, even though we don't entirely fit there anymore, even though we've outgrown that space. Our wings get caught and there's no room for them to become all they're meant to be, to expand into their full glory, their full power. But unlike these butterflies with one shot to bust out of their confines, we get infinite opportunities to finish this work. If we get caught up, if we stay there too long, It's true that we'll miss seasons that we could have flown through in all of our brilliance. But we can keep wiggling and working and eventually pry ourselves loose so that we don't keep missing the seasons to come. There's something I really love in the story of the butterfly that she describes as flailing frantically, the one that crawled onto the adjacent chrysalises and freaked them out for or as it fought itself free. You know, she wonders if it's too late for its wings to straighten out, but I don't think so. You know, sometimes there are elements of our before that don't wanna let us go. People or patterns or addictions that just seem too powerful to quite overcome. We have to reach out for help. We have to be willing to flail frantically and fight, even when others think that we're done for that flailing might freak some people out. Dude, that flailing might freak us out, right? But we keep going. We keep leaning into that question, but what if I'm almost there? What if I'm almost free? And then we let that fuel us as we learn to leave those old stories or that self-defeating behavior or those toxic relationships behind as We feel the fluid in ourselves that's meant to pump our wings out straight and strong and listen for that truth that lives in all of us. The truth that we are brilliantly colored, sentient cousins of flowers who are meant to fly because we are. I love all of this, but maybe most especially this last paragraph where she talks about this concept of instar. She says, But the changes in a butterfly's life are not always so dramatic. The strange, resonant word instar describes a stage between two successive molts, for, as it grows, a caterpillar splits its skin again and again. It remains a caterpillar as it goes through these molts, but no longer one in the same skin. And she goes on. There are rituals marking such splits, graduations, indoctrinations, etc but that most changes proceed without such clear and encouraging recognition. And I love this because for as important as all the big bloody transformations that change our forms completely are, and they really are, we only go through a handful of those in our lifetimes. But this, these instar stages, these molts where we may remain the same at our core, but we do it in different skins, these are a constant in our lives. And like the bigger transformations, these molds require a letting go of some old way of being. And as I can't imagine that the shedding of a caterpillar's skin is, you know, an entirely comfortable process, neither is the work required for the more subtle transformations to take place more regularly in our lives. I love how she says that these changes proceed most often without clear and encouraging recognition. This is the quiet work of our daily lives. These are the small changes that add up to the entirely new skins. They're often small and subtle and known only to ourselves, the practice and work that stretch us just enough to make our current skin a little tight. It can be taking social media apps off of our phones so that we can take control of our concentration. Or maybe it's drawing boundaries around how accessible we are to people who take up a little too much of our energy and rarely give any back. Maybe it's slowing down and resisting that call to urgency and busyness that marks our hustle culture so that we can make sure that our time is spent intentionally on things that actually matter to us. And it's the day-to-day practice of staying curious and interested in where we are in what we're feeling, how our time is spent. It's staying open and receptive to possibilities, staying interested in the experiences of those around us, of letting curiosity live next to our fear so that we can still move forward even when we want to cling to what was. Change and transformation are not idyllic, comfortable, smooth processes. Whether big or small, they require a letting go of what was, the decay of whatever came before. Sometimes that shift gets us out of a skin we've outgrown and into one that fits us better for now. Sometimes that shift breaks down everything that we were into a pulpy mass, and we hunker down into the work of reforming into something new, into something that no longer fits into that slender space from before. As Solnit says, this process is something both heavenly and disastrous. To straighten our wings, we have to pump them full of fluid. We have to brace ourselves with curiosity so that we can look into the open air below our chrysalis and eventually let go and risk the unknown beyond it. We practice this as caterpillars. We practice this when we are in star, when we create growth that stretches our skins until we molt into new ones. It can be a bloody business, but on the other side, when we break our chrysalis open and we unfurl our wings, when we release what we know and we get curious and we drop into what's next, we are brilliant. We are most fully the sentient cousins of flowers that we've known all along were inside us. We know that we were made to fly, and so we do. That's from Rebecca Solnit's book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, and as always, you can find the link for it in the show notes at cindyjuvinoli.com backslash podcast. Definitely check it out, and you know, let me know if your copy ends up as dog-eared as mine. Now, you know that I love sharing quotes and lines from stories and poems that you guys are sending me, so keep them coming. Christine T. shared this quote from The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse by Charlie McAsee. The quote, "'What is the bravest thing you've ever said?' asked the boy. "'Help,' said the horse." And Christine said, "'Asking for help has never been one of my strong points. I've always been a private person and a person who seemed fine on the outside. Maybe I thought it was a sign of weakness to admit I needed help. I think it was also that I've never wanted to bother anyone, and on bad days, I felt I wasn't worth helping. I love this quote in Mackesy's book because asking for help was one of the bravest things I've ever done. Oh, Christine, I love this so much. Thank you, thank you for sharing. You know, asking for help really is one of the greatest acts of courage available to us, isn't it? So next week, we're going to be pulling a section from the first book in Sabah Tahir's YA fantasy series, *In Ember in the Ashes. Until then, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Giovanoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word.